Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morrison and Forrester, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Hello, and welcome to our MoFo podcast. I'm your host, Joe Barry Whitten, Director of Marketing and Client Development for Europe. I'm joined today by my fellow colleagues and speakers, Alistair Morn and Ed Downer. Alistair leads MoFo's European Commercial and Technology Group, and he's also managing partner of MoFo's London office. He has a long track record of working on a wide range of complex commercial projects, primarily, but not exclusively, in the technology sector. Ed is a finance lawyer at MoFo's office based in London. Ed assists clients with stressed and distressed financing matters, financial restructurings and cross-border insolvency. Ed and Alistair are going to spend the next 30 minutes or so exploring a number of considerations for companies operating in the current environment, sharing their tips and insights to successfully navigate the months ahead. This conversation has been specifically designed to supplement and support their recent publication, 10 Tips for Companies Operating in the Current Environment. And that's available now on the Morrison Forster website, mofo.com. That's M-O-F-O dot com. So, Alistair, without further ado, can I hand over to you? Uh, yeah, thanks, uh, Joe, for that introduction. And, and as you say, we're, we're going to talk um, over the next 30 minutes or so about tips that we've seen within MoFo of our collective experience of the companies operating in the current um, economically stressful environment. Uh, and Ed, I know that as part of that, we're really doing our best to channel the collective thoughts of lots of our MoFo colleagues across various disciplines, commercial disputes, financing, restructuring and, and, and corporate. Um, so maybe let's uh, try and do them justice and, and maybe kick off perhaps with, if you can just fill us in, where where we culled these 10 tips from? Well, as you said, Alistair, a group of us did come together to consider the issues being faced by our clients as we enter Q2 2020. And um, as we counsel them to navigate a path through what is worldwide going to be an extremely challenging period. Some particular trends and recurring questions arose. And while some were more pertinent to particular sectors than others, there seemed to be so much commonality, we wanted to distill the issues and share them with our clients and contacts. Um, okay, so um, uh, it sort of feels like given our shared interest in sport, Ed, we probably should have come up with some sporting or, or cricketing theme for this, but maybe that would just make us a bit too nostalgic in this lockdown situation. But maybe let's start off with what any good team needs in a, in a batting order, a good strong opener. And I think in our experience, uh, we really start from the perspective of needing companies need to undertake an examination of their business fundamentals and, and probably, primarily initially at cash flow issues. And hopefully I can crack this one to the boundary quite easily. Um, cash is um, obviously a critical feature for businesses and cash flow fundamentals are being brought into stark focus. Um, our first tip um, uh, is to list out some of the fundamentals that finance departments across the globe um, will be extremely focused on and they, of course, have a lot of KPIs tied to um, the recurring points that we mention here. The first is monitoring cash and doing so against forecasts. As business forecasts undergo uh, you know, a, a, an urgent and then 
somewhat um, speculative rewrite, um, those who can keep extremely accurate controls on their use of cash and forecasting it with a degree of rational business interruption assumptions will stand themselves in pretty good stead to identify future challenges and headwinds, as well as to prepare for negotiations with suppliers and financiers. So one of the smart things we're seeing is the stress testing of those forecasts, considering especially the speculative nature of them. Preparing contingency plans to address the changes, um, and those things will be especially helpful for finance departments so that they can bet help better inform business decisions. So when you're looking at this, I mean, obviously you're a primarily restructuring lawyer, but you guys in the restructuring team and the, and the finance team, when you look at this sort of situation and when cash flow is tight, what are the sort of general cash flow best practices that you see businesses looking to follow? Cash flow is a matter of cause and effect. There is, um, in the business community today, um, widespread recognition and understanding about how the coronavirus pandemic and the associated worldwide lockdowns are having massive and, pardon the pun, contagious impacts on revenue streams across supply chains. So a sensible management of a business's fixed costs and implementation of other cost-cutting measures will be key to keeping businesses on an even keel. The better these things can be presented to potential sources of cash, be they existing or new credit providers or others, then the better the prospects of obtaining additional cash are. And the last point, which almost goes without saying, is trying to keep debtor days as low as possible. This is uh, an impossible dream, some might say, as society struggles through this. And so it's something that will need to be handled sensitively to the current environment. But the key points remain good and regular information flows between customers and suppliers and introducing payment plans um, sound like they're going to be commonplace for the next period. Alistair, in terms specifically of being sensitive to the market that each business operates in, what are the key things we've been talking to prudent businesses about? Yeah, I think as we've been sort of as you indicated, as we've been talking to clients over the past few weeks, the most common themes we see are about to understanding of the threats and opportunities in the different sectors and industries in which businesses, clients operate, trying to understand and mirror market practice and, and then attune market practice to businesses' own particular circumstances. Obviously, there's been a very short-term focus on prioritization of key areas and doing so defensively, but also working out what forms of external financial supports available. And, and I guess we'll come on to talk about that later on. But we also see, I think, companies trying to get insight on how competitors in the industry generally is responding to the COVID-19 situation. Maybe uh, surprisingly, as a commercial lawyer, I've probably seen better communication up and down the supply chain in better, more stable times. Companies, there's a sense of we're all in this together and companies are trying to be familiar with the pressures on their customers and suppliers and react accordingly. Basically trying to, I guess, work out if there are ways to support customers and suppliers which also benefit their own business. 
So obviously a lot of the work I do is in the tech sector. That's the one I know best. And and many companies rely, for example, on outsourced or offshoring relationships to deliver support or technology needs. And it's been gratifying, I think, to see how strong levels of collaboration between an outsourced customer and supplier in terms of how they get through this together. While an offshore provider, for example, might be in lockdown, what are they going to do jointly with SLAs, service level agreements? How do they get resources prioritized away from more aspirational type of development projects onto keep the lights on type of work? So I know there are finance issues and lessons to be learned from experiences of restructuring, but from from a commercial perspective, I think one of the keys is how to set up a business to strengthen the company's performance during a challenging market and what approach to take to contracts and supply chain relationships to make all of that happen. So there's certainly going to be a recognition that a business won't be stronger coming out of this environment than, than they were coming into it. But what sort of work streams are being undertaken to come out of it in a position of relative strength? Yeah, probably a lot of the focus has to be on corporate management and the role of the board. And a lot of this is similar to what we see during general times of of crisis or specific scenarios, for example, in respect of a data breach situation. And I know there's lots of stuff on the MoFo website about general crisis management and data breach or leak situations. And there's probably no point you or I, Ed, going over what people like our colleagues David Newman or Miriam Wugmeister can say far more eloquently than we can. But obviously, boards need to meet frequently during tough times. I think decisions and discussions need to be carefully documented and recorded. And then companies need to work out who's going to be responsible for making decisions and coordinating the response and then kind of collapse the hierarchy so that the decision makers are hearing from the experts directly rather than filtered through layers of management. Best practice, certainly, I think we see being identifying a clear leader and their supporting team and then make certain they communicate internally and externally and to do so very visibly. But probably, as as you know, maybe better than me, Ed, directors also have their own personal duties and their legal duties to comply with. So I don't know if you want to elaborate a bit on whether you think we're seeing evidence of boards knowing how best to react to this situation while still being mindful of their legal duties, or is that still something that, that companies are having to work their way through? No, I think we've seen uh, widespread and very close engagement of boards with the with the coronavirus outbreak and its impact on business interruption, and, and that's appropriate. Um, directors' duties are always assessed against the standard of prudent business people, and in these unprecedented times, it's it's become essential for boards to meet much more often than usual. Um, and at those meetings, to consider commercial strategy, align it with best practice cash management and um, <laughs> such market understanding as, as you can develop. It all changes so quickly and, and so differently across geographies. So enhanced communication is fundamental to satisfying that duty to manage businesses properly. So I guess what what do we see happening? There are scenarios when even prudent stewardship, as you as you mentioned before, even that isn't necessarily solving the problem. What what are boards having to do when it, when even that course sensible prudent course of action isn't having the 
the desired effect straight away. There are a lot of businesses out there that recognize there's only so much they can do and 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 boards recognize that liquidity becomes tight directors at that point need to be mindful that their duties can shift um, they shift so that they then need to act with particular concern to the interests of their creditors in precedence to the interests of shareholders it's also a concern around, and we field lots of questions in the UK about wrongful trading, which is the personal liability that arises when a company incurs more credit once it is clear that the company is headed for insolvency. This liability was given particular attention in many countries. In the UK, Australia and elsewhere, the liability has been suspended. Um, however, the general director's duties against which a director's conduct is assessed continue to operate. If we switch our focus back, Alistair, to some commercial arrangements, I know we've fielded a lot of questions about the impact of coronavirus on contracts in particular. And obviously, with freedom of contract in the UK, the US and elsewhere, there are a few limits on what commercial contracts do, but what are some of the specific things businesses can and should be doing around their contracts? Well, clearly, as far as key commercial contracts are concerned, I think almost every business is expecting and trying to plan as much as they can for disruption in their supply chains. And as that happens, it's probably inevitable there's going to be greater potential for contract cancellations and contract disputes. And, and we'll come on to talk about that in a few minutes time. I think the first task that I'm seeing from a commercial and contractual perspective probably is companies identifying the main service and supply lines that might be affected or that they might need to rely on even more in a time of crisis. So we think about who in any given organisation knows what the key service and supply arrangements might be and then work out who's assessing whether and how those might be affected. And then also uh, are the key commercial drivers under those contracts affected or not or how are they affected? So if performance starts to become affected, which contracts do you need to prioritise? And then, of course, those questions apply equally across both customer and supplier relationships. So you need to think both upstream and downstream to understand you know, how you're going to be affected depending on where you fit in the overall supply chain. Generally, I would always begin by reviewing contracts to understand the key risks and, and options. And obviously, the starting point needs to be the actual text of the key business agreements. You mentioned you know, when you handed over to me last time around, you know, it comes down to freedom of contract, and certainly that's the common law experience of making certain you understand what the agreement actually requires. Sometimes you've even got a prior question to that of can you find the contracts? Do you know where they are? And that even that challenge may leave some businesses wanting. But but assuming that you can find the contract and you can assess it, I typically think about things whether the contract requires that a business continuity plan or resilience plan exists figure out if it does actually exist and how current is it? Has it ever been tested? And then what does it require you to do and what does it require your contract counterparty to do? And then probably I, before I 
hand back to you maybe I'd, I'd say it's worthwhile, always worthwhile checking the text of each key agreement to determine what the contractual rights and obligations are especially focus at clauses that are either covenants or repeating representations that might go into default or obligations or clauses which might oppose obligations or relief from events of default obviously force majeure possibly being one of the key one of those from a commercial perspective what are you saying about that great lawyer's catch-all material adverse change? Uh, can, it can mean anything to anyone, material adverse change, I suppose. But obviously some contracts do contain the clause that you mentioned, providing for termination or suspension in the event of a material adverse change, or MAC as we tend to call it. And those MAC clauses are designed as a kind of sweep up to cover termination events or events of default that are not expressly included in the agreement. I know it, it sometimes surprises you and your other colleagues in the finance and restructuring sectors how few commercial contracts contain a MAC clause. Force majeure is really the fail-safe that we, we tend to see. MAC clauses are kind of the same concept, but I think they're more often creatures of financing agreements. Regardless of the reasons why it may be in an agreement, typically the interpretation depends on the scope or the looseness of the drafting of the MAC clause. There's often a degree of uncertainty, I guess, as to whether the clause has been properly triggered. And that can sometimes leave the enforcing party in the in the unfavourable situation of having breached the contract itself if it's later found that the conditions for a MAC haven't been met. But what we do know uh, about the interpretation of a MAC clause, um, the interpretation is really specific to the facts of each situation and the wording of each clause. There are certainly court decisions that make it clear that, uh, well, three things really. First, a change is only going to be material in the context of a material adverse change clause if it affects a company's ability to perform its obligations under the relevant agreement. Second, a party can't trigger a MAC clause in respect of circumstances of which it was aware at the outset. And thirdly, to be material, a change mustn't be merely temporary. It must be of a more permanent nature. So holding up any given set of circumstances and any given clause against those three tests will give you an idea of where you sit in terms of your contractual obligations or potentially relief from contractual obligations. Sounds like there's certainly some scope there for argument either way. When we do see... Um potential breaches of contract what are businesses able to do to navigate around those uh, well i might turn that back to you in a minute to think about the finance documents but but my main suggestion i think from a commercial perspective is that if a breach could arise you need to evaluate the options open to you to avoid or limit the impact obviously commercially you want to try to comply with the contract requirements as best you possibly can while at the same time protecting the company's position if that's not possible. So there's a slight two-headed nature to the way a company needs to operate in that particular situation. Is that split approach consistent to what you see from a finance or restructuring perspective? Well, in finance documents, the main focus is is around the, the future breach of financial maintenance covenants. And the covenants are built into finance documents to provide lenders with the early warning signs, usually in advance of a payment default, uh, that all's not well with the financial health of the business. So in particular, we feel 
inquiries about what can and cannot be included within the uh, calculation of EBITDA and consolidated net income. And the potential impact of, of a breach of financial maintenance covenants tripping calculations based on EBITDA and, and CNI can have significant cross default consequences. What we've not yet seen, but we could see come quite soon, is a wave of preemptive waivers that can be sought by a an organized and well-prepared borrower. That's certainly on the table for, for a number of borrowers who can see the potential of all event of default down the line. I wonder, is there something similar that arises under commercial contracts? Yeah, that's probably the same. I'd say we haven't seen a wave of, of actual claims yet or resorting to law, but there's usually a time lag in these sorts of situations. As I kind of mentioned before, a lot of companies don't have a lot of alternative options in many cases, so they kind of just have to plough on regardless, although hopefully keeping clear records and preserving their contractual rights. I think that's kind of the situation that most people feel as if they're in at the moment. So when the proverbial iceberg appears dead ahead in the form of a, a breach of contract, yeah, kind of, as I mentioned a few moments ago, take a close look at the contract, you know, especially the MAC clause or force majeure provision. Certainly under any common law jurisdiction, the analysis is typically heavily driven by the specific language of the clause. And is it is the drafting wide enough to cover a coronavirus type situation or a, a, an economic situation triggered by coronavirus? So generally, I think if an unforeseeable event occurs like this public health crisis, parties to a contract may may be partially or completely exempt from performance but you need to remember that the situation usually requires objective assessment and clearly following official government guidance is much more likely to protect you contractually than simply acting out of extreme prudence which is why you know companies are looking around to make certain they understand what the government guidance is and what market practice is and and I think it's also possible that some duties could conflict with each other. So, for example, you know, a company may want to protect its employees by shutting down production early, just out of prudence and care for the health and safety of their employees. But if that's a more aggressive approach than what might be deemed reasonable, you might not be excused under key commercial contracts with customers or, or raw material suppliers. So I think things to think about in looking at MAC or force majeure clause include, you know, how broad or narrow is it? Does it use generalized broad language like event beyond the control of the parties or does it spell out specific kinds of force majeure event? And then does usually a MAC or force majeure provision will turn on issues around foreseeability or the degree to which the pandemic makes performance impossible? And it's a bit hard to talk about that in abstract, but generally I think the key point is is really that just because performance is more expensive or burdensome, it doesn't necessarily mean it will be excused, even under a force majeure clause. On the other hand, absolute impossibility may not be required. So you need to think in each situation where the party's inability to perform because of this pandemic situation falls in that spectrum. And, and I think there's two or three other key things that I always ask around a MAC or force majeure clause. Uh, number one, usually it means that performance is excused, but not always. So some contracts say that force majeure only applies after a business continuity plan has run its course, for example. Second, uh, 
some contracts might say that if the other party has to make other arrangements because of your inability to perform, then they're entitled to be reimbursed the cost difference. So that's clearly something to be aware of. Or, or even thirdly, and, and worst case, I guess, could a protracted force majeure situation turn into a right to terminate? So I think watching out for that risk and considering carefully whether you want to invoke the force majeure provision or take steps to prevent someone else terminating a contract that you want to continue, those those are three key things to look out for when you're, when you're examining what your contract says. So there's certainly a few areas here, um, not just the specific issues in finance documents around EBITDA, CNI and MAC clauses, but, but certainly some broader issues, particularly foreseeable in relation to force majeure contracts that are going to uh, give rise to potential disputes. Yeah, yeah, and I think, uh, you know, I'd be looking out for grace periods, thinking about countermeasures, thinking about an open dialogue with key contractual counterparties that still protects your your rights and remedies and then understanding what the notice periods are or the contractual requirements for dealing with with potential defaults but maybe we can switch back from kind of commercial contracts to more finance side and and think about we referred earlier on to financial support that's available uh, for businesses in the current situation Maybe I can uh, turn it back to you to talk about what what are people, businesses doing to access existing credit that might be available to them? Well, in general terms, existing credit facilities and drawing on those is the first port of call. And and that's been well publicised. Many medium and larger businesses will have availability under working capital facilities if they're revolving credit or some other asset-based lending facility. A lot of businesses have had these things in place but not been using them. So drawing down on those um, is certainly the easiest and it's, uh, it, it's helpful. But a few things to bear in mind, especially if these facilities haven't been drawn in a while. Firstly, repeating representation. When you draw a facility and at the end of interest periods, there are a series of representations that are repeated. So businesses need to be mindful of those. The main reps that we're sort of fielding questions about are continuity of business operations and financial maintenance covenants. It's also important for some facilities to bear in mind that they spring in covenants, uh, which kick in when a facility is drawn above a, a certain level. And if that's not enough, how easy is it in the current environment to get new third-party debt into structures? Well, perhaps fortuitously, the last six or seven years have seen uh, certainly private equity-backed businesses import great flexibility into finance documents. So what were historically tight restrictions on incurrence of, of further debt have been replaced with a much more permissive regime. So permitted debt baskets today are looser than they have been. And that flexibility may allow borrowers to borrow on super senior basis above existing debt in the structure or otherwise to get debt in equal or pari passu with existing debt. There may also be permissions to incur debt against otherwise unencumbered assets. Okay, so but 
I guess that depends on flexibility being in the finance documents. What what if it just isn't there? Can how what are we seeing around how borrowers can incur the necessary additional credit at the moment? Whether you can or or cannot, obviously the additional debt needs to be marketable. So debt ranking and collateral will have the most significant bearing uh, on not just pricing, but whether there's any appetite at all for banks or alternative capital providers to lend. It may be the case that existing lenders aren't prepared to fund further amounts or third parties can't come into a structure unless, as you allude to, changes are made. And so borrowers need to explore and their owners will want them to explore a raft of um, ways to make changes. And we spend a lot of time, especially in restructuring capital structures, looking at the, the softer ways we can do these things, including through simple waivers, extensions of maturity of debt, uh, as well as to wholesale changes of debt ranking, reduction of principal and capitalising cash interest payments. I feel a bit like the harbinger of doom, but I get the same questions before. That's great. But but what if that fails? What's kind of the next step down after that? Now that's certainly where we uh, we open the restructuring and insolvency toolbox. In the UK, we can move assets into new structures using prepackaged administrations. Lenders are able in certain circumstances to force the issue by enforcing security. Administrators have rights to obtain funding to trade during administration, and that's without regard to to those unsecured debt incurrence restrictions. And there are always other jurisdictions to consider. In particular, one area we give a lot of advice on is the potential use of the US Chapter 11 proceeding, uh, where a very healthy market exists for providing debtor in possession financing. They're the main market mechanisms, I suppose we've seen, but Alistair, we've seen governments in the UK and elsewhere stepping in to provide a lot of relief. Yeah, in the UK, it almost feels recently as if new measures have been announced here in the UK almost on a weekly basis now. But well, I'm certainly aware because my you know, our colleagues are doing some work to pull together the stimulus measures that lots of main, lots of large jurisdictions are offering, but um, and they're you know follow a similar path, but with differences between them. So, so certainly a lot of these businesses that have multi-country operations need to be looking at the uh, stimulus support by relevant governments. In the UK, the main operational support, I guess, has been the form of the job retention scheme for government funding of workers who are put on furlough during the impact of coronavirus on business. In the UK, that's capped at 80% of the employee's pay, capped at £2,500 per month. If you ally that to business rates holidays and local authority grants, as well as revenue relief in the form of statutory sick pay and general time to pay relief, you know, that's kind of one raft of, of measures. And then there's probably uh, other things on, on top of that from a more slightly more macro perspective. Well, we've got the cash that businesses can access. So depending on the size of a business, there's a smaller business loan scheme where loans up to five million pounds are available um, which are 80 percent guaranteed by the government they're available to businesses with a revenue less than 45 million pounds where 
annual revenue is between 45 and 500 million pounds, that loan limit increases from 5 million to 25 million pounds. And so this scheme is being made, in fact, direct to businesses through commercial banks, each of whom must be satisfied of certain credit criteria. There's a further funding source in the market for investment grade borrowers, and that status is assessed against their pre-coronavirus financial position. And those investment grade borrowers need to make a material contribution to the UK economy. Uh, for those businesses, the government is providing funding for them through the underwriting of commercial paper at attractive pricing. I know we're coming up on time, so we better probably wrap this up, but it's sort of nice to finish on a somewhat positive point of the the opportunities that are out there for stimul you know economic stimulus and business support and, and in many ways what's been out there means there's maybe a little something for everyone, I suppose. It is a tremendously expansive package in the UK. It's got equivalents across the globe. There are um, huge packages available um, for certain borrowers in the US, Germany, and, and most other major jurisdictions where um, we and our clients operate. But in the UK in particular, there is a bit of a hole and some significant businesses which were sub-investment grade pre-coronavirus, they might not be able to access government support for future funding. That has already been the subject of a significant amount of lobbying. And I think we'd all expect that to uh, continue in earnest as uh, as we work our way through this crisis. Yeah, okay. Well, look, we probably should wrap it up there because I think we're at the at the promised time. So uh, thanks to you for, for doing this. It's been an interesting experience, both of us speaking into the ether from our uh, individual lockdown situations. But uh, uh, thanks to anyone who's listened to it and the MoFo team for, for pulling it together. And uh, maybe, Joe, we'll hand back to you to close yes, this off. Thank you, Alistair. Thank you, Ed. This is the end of our episode on tips for companies operating in the current environment. Once again, I'm your host, Jervari Whitten, speaking with Alistair Morn and Ed Downer. Thank you all so very much for joining us. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. 